FM Ann Arbor, your Dharmic. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today we have an episode with Fred Moten, which we taped in December of 2022 when Fred Moten was in town for the Zell Visiting Writers series. Today we talk about his books, All That Beauty, Field Trio, and especially B. Jenkins. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy today's program with Fred Moten. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Fred Moten he is here with me, joining via Zoom. Fred, thank you so much for being on Living Writers today, the 7th of December, 2022. And thank you for, for being so brilliant with technology that you could share your sound from your own computer and start us off. What could you tell us a little bit about? the song and um, why it's starting us off today? Um, well, first of all, thank you, T, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. That that piece is a, it's it's from a performance by this great pianist named, uh, in the mid 20th century pianist named Wilhelm Kempf. And it's a performance of Beethoven's eighth piano sonata, which is often referred to as the uh, I just have to excuse my horrible French, but the pathétique, um, which is, you know, pathetic. And the reason that it's been on my mind, actually, for the last couple of weeks is because the, the great poet and novelist and essayist Eileen Miles recently edited uh, a brilliant anthology of, of literature called Pathetic Literature. Um, and, uh, and they asked me to participate in one of the readings, uh, that was part of the book launch for, for this anthology. And so in my, and I immediately, I, I thought of that, I thought of that, that, that movement, which is the second movement of the sonata is sort of, it's one of, I guess you could say Beethoven's most famous tunes. It's a, it shows up a lot in movie scores and you know stuff like that, but but it's a singable, hummable tune. And so, when I was before I read the poem of mine that was in that anthology, I sang this horrible off-key sort of version of of that little opening uh, piece. Um, 
but it's, it's a you know it's a beautiful piece of music and it uh kind of exemplifies i think you know what it is this this notion of the of the pathetic or even and therefore of the, of the empathetic you know um this 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 radical commitment to to feel and to feeling that that is almost a disruptive commitment it's it's disruptive of 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 normative ideas of selfhood and and personhood you know um it, it disrupts the normal notions that we think about what separates one body or one person you know from another and 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 that's so much of what again that's so much of what Eileen is interested in when she says I'm sorry when they say that literature is pathetic <laughs> you know um yeah. you know um and of course you know it's got this double meaning obviously you know there's something pathetic about being interested in literature. You, you, you know, it's 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 a it's a pastime of losers. You know, you're in good um, company, Fred. Yeah, no, but no, I'm I'm happy to be here with all the with all the pathetic people. So, yeah, yeah, and it makes me think too, like how that's also in the public space. We sometimes have these different uh, veils or performative ways of being too that that then would bolster us so that our pathetic or our that that whatever that part of us is isn't sort of um raw or revealed in those scenarios so um or in public sometimes um and so i think that's so interesting and brave of you to have gone up to the mic to to hum or to sing that before you read your poem well, you know, it's not doesn't take that much bravery to be a ham, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Could you give us a sample of it, or are you like, no, I did that. You had to be there. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, I probably, I ordinarily I would be happy to do it, but I, I'm not gonna try to follow Kemp. You know, I mean, <laughs> okay, it, it's, it would just it would it would only be a disappointment. Okay. Well, well, not to me, but anyway, I've been so looking forward to talking with you, Fred. Thanks so much for taking the taking the time to do this because you're here, you're visiting Ann Arbor as part of the Zell Visiting Writer series, and you'll be giving a talk and a reading mm -hmm. and, and all of uh, all of these good things. I'm just gonna read your short bio in the book that I'm holding in my hands here, All That Beauty. And this book is out with Letter Machine Editions. Mm -hmm. and, and this publication place was Seattle, Washington. I thought it was so interesting that the Field Trio also out with Letter Machine Editions, but their published point was in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> well, you know, the world of small press publishing is very unique, you know. A lot of times when you see a, a small press book. You know what you're really seeing is the product of of one person, maybe a couple people's labor, and so the publication point kind of moves with that person. And in this instance, the publication point moved with this wonderful poet and an editor and publisher named Joshua Marie Wilkinson, who um, who published three of my books of poetry and who. And I, you know, the, the all that beauty is one of the 
it might be the last, uh, or at least one of the last books that that uh, that Letter Machine publishes for a while, because he, um, you know, he and his partner uh, Lisa, they moved to Seattle and they have a a little baby named Jude, and so they're starting like a different kind of life, and it's hard to keep up that kind of commitment to the to the small press when you are starting that life with a child. So he's taking at least a hiatus from publishing, but I was always so happy. It was very lucky for me to, I mean, I've enjoyed working with all the publishers that I worked with, but I, but I had a special place in my heart for Josh because, because at a certain point he realized that, that the kinds of stuff that I was trying to work on just maybe didn't fit within the normal format, you know, of books, of poetry books. And he accommodated that, you know, he made it, he made it so that, so that I could have a wider page, as you can see with those books and uh, with that one and, and with the field. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. so I, you know, I know sometimes people talk about my publisher and, and obviously I, I, I'm working with different people now and, and the people that I've been working with on the book that's coming out soon, they've been totally great, you know, wave books. Oh, wave. And, yeah. And yeah. Wesleyan, you know, that I worked with. And, and it was Joshua who connected me with the people at Wave Books. Joshua and also, well, he he suggested Wave Books. And then the person that I knew who was a um who was a uh, an author in, in their sort of lineup is a great, great, great writer and artist, Renee Gladman, who happened to be the person who published my first full-length big book of poetry called Houston's Tavern on, on her press, which is again, a sort of one person show. Um, her press was called, is called, was called Leon works, you know? So, so basically, you know, the, the small press sort of poetry world that I'm involved in is really like, you're sort of depending upon the kindness, but also the energy of a few individual people, you know, who are just committed to putting out stuff that they like. And who, if you're really lucky, they're also committed to putting out the stuff that you do in the way that you want it done, you know? And it's um, be a rare thing. Yeah. 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 So. I can tell why you love Josh and, you know, the, the press, because they're, they're beautiful books, Fred. Yeah. You know, to hold them in your hands and, and to open them, to experience how you as the, the poet and the maker how you are using the page like this is because sometimes because of other conventions you know even if the poet is doing that we don't get to see it right mm -hmm. it's it's squashed or maybe you get one bonus page that could fold out so yeah this is really really lovely and and it, it's interesting to hear you speak about it Fred because you also co-founded a press as well yeah my my I was, well, one of the lucky things that happened to me um, was the time I spent living in Durham, North Carolina, where for the first time, really, I wouldn't say the first time, but but <laughs> for the first sort of grown-up time, I was a rap, sort of involved in a community of poets, you know, in a community of writers. And there was a very lively sort of poetry scene there that was kind of, really the the centerpiece the central figures in it were students at Duke University where I was teaching um a couple of students who were also extraordinarily great poets 
Magdalena Zorowski and Pete Moore. And, and, and they created a kind of zone in which, you know, we had readings all the time. We, we were able to, you know, sort of leverage some of Duke's money, you know, to bring poets in and bring, and, and, and we also were able to connect with poets in the area who weren't necessarily affiliated or connected with Duke, at least in the academic part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just like a little hotbed and we just hung out and read together. And one of the people who kind of started to come around and hang around our poetry readings was this guy named Ken Taylor, who turns out to be this extraordinary poet. And Ken and I, and another great poet in Durham, a really great like central figure in the last 30 years of American poetry, Joseph Donahue, we we kind of got together and decided to start this small press. The original outprint output out press was called Three Count Poor. Um, right. And then Ken came in and infused us with some energy and a little bit of money. And he started a journal and then also a press called Selva Oscura. And so now Three Count Poor is a kind of imprint of Selva Oscura. But that's the name of our press. And we've got you know, we've been doing some some really cool stuff. We've got, um, you know, we've reprinted some really great stuff. We reprinted Nathaniel Mackey's first book, Eroding Witness, and we printed some previously unpublished essays of Robert Duncan. We've got, um, got uh, a, a great book that came out last year from Erica Hunt, a great book from uh, a, a poet named Kimberly Alidio. Now we even also have, we almost have a bestseller now. Um, <laughs> this one great, great poet named uh, Joy Layden. And it's an extraordinary poet, extraordinarily, extraordinary book on sort of the intimate personal relationship between God and a figure who, and, you know, and, and, a, and a, you know, a figure who is, a, she's a poet that is, who is a a trans woman and an Orthodox Jew. And it's from that position that she's investigating and really deeply involved and embedded in this deep sort of relation with God. And and the book is a reinvention of of a certain notion of what God can be called Shekinah Speaks. That has become a very, very popular book. And so we got some good stuff and we got more good stuff coming out, a book coming out from a Haitian American poet next uh, year called Stephanie Jean. That's really cool. Got more stuff coming. Uh, got poetry by a guy named Brock Russell. Um, that's really, really amazing. Beautiful book called um, After Kleist by a great poet named Matthew Fink. So we got a lot of good stuff. Um, we got a lot how of good you, stuff coming. How, so how are you for your, for your imprint? How are you finding these these poets and these books of theirs that you do want to print? Well, I mean, a lot of it is um, kind of happenstance, you know, the extent, sometimes I get around and I meet people, you know, in the poetry world. And a lot of what I think we wanted to do was to be a press that kind of had two primary functions, which is to take stuff that maybe was out of print or lost or difficult to find and get it back into circulation. Mm-hmm. And then also to be a place that could be a kind of a good welcoming place for people trying to do their first books, you know? What a great um, balance of yeah. those two parts of the the ongoing conversation of like the poetry world or so. Yeah. And so we, no, we, 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 
so a lot of times I like I if I go visit an MFA program or if I you know one time I was involved in a sort of mentorship program at Poets House and one time another time a mentor program at the Poetry Project in St. Mark's and I'm like oh this is really great you know I have a former student from my performance studies class um, whose stuff is amazing. Um, and I'm I'm getting old, so I space out out Sade Sade Powell, and I'm hopeful that we're going to be bringing out Sade's work soon. Hopefully at the end of next year. Um, beautiful sort of concrete typewriter driven poetry. Oh, nice! But but a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, as a kind of scout, you know, I I have good taste, which is confirmed by the fact that other people want these poets too. So a lot of times we'll initiate a you know. A, a consultation with somebody and say, well, we want to bring your stuff out. You know, we want to see it. But we also are like, look, you know, we're a small press, like a really small press. Like within the small press world, we're like a double small press. So so if you can get something with a place that's more prestigious or if you get a deal with some place that can do more for the book maybe than we can, you know, go ahead. You know, we don't have any hard feelings about that. And that, that has happened a couple of times. But I think what we guarantee, what we can guarantee is that we will make, is that we don't have a standard format that we like to use. So what we want to do is we want to make the, the book look exactly how you want it to look. But that means that the poets have to be visually attuned to what it is that they're doing. We, I, so we tell them, we want each page to look like a picture, to mm -hmm. be a picture. And our job is to publish the picture of the page. We can make changes and do different things at the level of font. And we have a great designer who helps us with those things, you know, and who, who does that work. But what we want is to be, is to produce a visual experience that corresponds with how the poet sees what they're doing, you know? Right, yeah. right. So we've got plays coming out next year by a great friend of mine and former teacher and colleague of mine named David Lloyd, who's an extraordinary poet and playwright. So we're going to put out his collected plays. We got another book coming out from a friend who's a, a legal scholar and critical theorist and a brilliant, brilliant poet and scholar of, and student of poetry named Sora Han. So we got some good stuff coming. You know? Oh my gosh, Fred, I feel like I could, <laughs> I, I sense that this may be a theme for our, our, our talk today, our conversation, because I could listen to you forever. A few moments ago, I was like, wait, this is about Fred though. No. <laughs> we got to get back to you. But I think it's wonderful to hear what your press is doing, because this obviously feels part of what your core beliefs are for how you are in the world as a as a poet, as a cultural theorist, as a, you know, as a maker. Um, so when you are saying this is from your press, this is what you're asking of your poets, is that also what your experience was then working with Josh? With yeah, his I, I, I wanted to, and in a lot of ways, you know, the beginnings of our press coincided with the beginning, the first, you know, the beginning of my being able to work with Josh and, um, and, um, and also it was corresponding to the beginnings of my doing much stuff that was much more sort of, that required a, a wider page. It was not just that I was all over the page, but but I want it to be all over a wide page, a, a, why, a, and why, a larger yeah, field. Why is that, Fred? Because is it, because do you think, is it connecting into some of the 
like the performance studies where you're thinking about space and differently or is it about like a feeling of public action or yeah what could you say a little more well it's certainly in in the field trio well some things couple things started happening which is you know you just noticed that you know poetry tends to be very demure and you know and it tries to stay in its place and you know it, it's very happy to hug hug that left margin you know of the page and yeah. not make not make a nuisance of itself you know by taking up too much space you know as opposed to prose which you know it 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 moves across the page you know and in but it does so within a very specific kind of regular you know in a in a specific and regular way and um and i guess you know i've always had you know these two sides to what i was doing you know for the last you know 30 years which is the sort of poetry side and the prose side. And over the course of time, things did get, you know, it got a little blurry, you know, there were things that were overlapping. You know, one of the things, it goes back further than that, you know, I used to, I mean, I'm old enough to have begun graduate school in the era of the typewriter, you know, so I didn't get a computer until right before I finished my dissertation or right before I started really working on it in like 91, 92. So I used to have a typewriter and I found, I found myself being constrained by the, by the margins of the typewriter and the eight and a half inches of the paper, if it were vertically aligned. And it was a liberating thing for me to be able to put paper into the typewriter sideways. And most of the papers that I wrote in graduate school were um, sideways, you know? <laughs> I think it was probably annoying to some of my professors, but but I wanted, I just needed more room, you know? I felt like I wanted more room and I, I don't know, maybe I just wanted to be different, I don't know. But, uh, but, but, but so, on my computer, I always on on the you know on my in my sort of notebooks and in, um, you know, which is where most of my writing begins. In those notebooks, it's it's the page setup is is what do they call it? Panorama or view or something? But it's sideways. That's how most of my writing begins. And um, and so and. You know, it's it's an extension of the kinds of innovations that somebody like Charles Olson was able to sort of theorize and also practice because of the typewriter, right? That the tab creates, gives you an easy way to, to, to move across the page and to make more space and mm -hmm. to create more space for the poem on the page. And similarly, the tab function works that way, you know, you know, on the computer keyboard as well. And um, so that by the time I was working on the field trio, I was really, even in some of the earlier books, I was using the tab a lot and kind of moving things over sometimes, but I was still primarily kind of hugging that left margin. But by the time I got to the field trio and specifically the, the middle part of the field trio, which is called Come On Get It. That was the that was the place. And this is this is 2011, you know, 2012. That's when I was really like 
I just, I actually want my, I don't want to translate this back into the, the margins of, of a normal poetry book. I can't, mm. I need this to look like it's supposed to look, you know? Yeah. And, and they did, they, they let me do that. They let me, they let me imagine again, that the, that the page was also a visual experience and they made my pages look like how I had composed them, you know? And, um, and so it was a very lucky, like I, I mean, I really truly believe it was like a, you know, I, again, I like, I was so thankful to, to, to have worked with Josh, you know, um, cause I know it was a pain for them, you know, and they had a format that they were sort of trying to stick to. And I think, and I, and I it probably costs more money. You it know? kind of blew it apart in a way, yeah. right? You know, like they, like they social let me disruption, yeah, on the page. Yeah, no, they they let me. And then the same thing with the the book that came out after the field trio is called the Little Edges from Wesleyan, and but they they gave me a a bigger format too. Um, it's not as not as wide, but it was wide enough to to match what I was trying to do on the page. But then when all that beauty when I was working on that. It just, it was, <laughs> it just, I lost all proportion. Like exponentially, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, well, yeah. I think that's also what the title is also indicating somehow. Like it's part of the work. Sorry if you can hear my dog in the background mm. <laughs> sort of jingling and shaking. Yeah. But yeah, the work, like when you hear, and I love that it's also just, it's got heft too. So it's it's um, a poetry book that is so unusual in so many ways, you know, like that it's, which is maybe this is the future too, I hope, Fred, because so it doesn't have to be this uniformity or conventionality or something that sits neatly on, on a shelf. Like you said before, like kind of just not taking up this much space and yeah. not more than that or, but the title, All That Beauty, it's just and how it and how it and how you come to it throughout the pages of it too and these different the different settings of the phrase even so when you're thinking about the space if we're looking at both both the field trio come and, um come and get it and all that beauty it's something that you want in the making of it that feels like it is the thing itself is what I'm hearing from you. So it's not only in the making of it and the decisions, how you're creating it and phys like physically using the tab or what it's also, is it how you want the reader to experience it too? So when they come to the page, their experience of it then is orchestrated differently, almost like a, like a musical score and also, do you read it then differently when you are there in person as the voice that yeah. speaks it? Well, I don't think that I was so much thinking about it as a musical score then, or even thinking that it it was going to place certain, you know, I don't know, constraints or, or a certain sort of set of, you know, produce a certain kind of structure for, for my reading it aloud. Um, but, uh, but I wanted, but I also wanted, but I, but, 
I mean, like I said, I, I wasn't thinking about that explicitly, but I think maybe it was implicit in the sense that a lot of what I'm doing is kind of predicated on the idea of multiple voices, multiple voicing. And so the idea that that it is like a score, you know, is is really important. The idea that it always feels to me like those poems ideally would be read by multiple voices, not just me, or that my voice wouldn't be the only sound, you know, that would be the ideal situation. Why? But up to that Why? time, I hadn't had the experience of doing that. I hadn't known, it was always like an ideal of mine, precisely insofar as it was always music, and you know, and particularly black music, that was my sort of touchstone and, and ideal, you know, and I wanted to have that kind of richness and that, that kind of complexity and that kind of multi-vocality. You know, I wasn't interested in just articulating my own voice, you know, so um, so I, I think I was producing something that corresponded to that on a visual level. But over the course of time, particularly over the course of the last three or four years. Um, well, a couple of things have happened, you know, I started. Yeah, I started thinking, you know, the, the, the poetry book, I love poetry books, you know, I, I get them all the time, you know, <laughs> but, but if everything is just going to be on the left margin, you know, then sometimes you'd be like, well, I don't know that my experience of reading it online and holding the book in my hand are necessarily all that different, you know, kind of right. thing. So I was like, I would like, what I would like is for a poetry book to be specific you know, in its design to what the poet is doing. And that, and that that specificity would show up visually, but it would also show up texturally, you know? And, um, and it's unclear to me that, that in the first instance, the first, you know, the natural habitat of poetry is the book or the printed page, you know? It might be the tapestry, you know, <laughs> you know, or painting, you know? So, so there's that part of it too. Um, and, and so in the future, I think, past this book I got coming out now, I think, man, I, I, the, the argument for making a book would be that there's something very specific, like it would be a collaboration with a book designer and it would be an actual collaboration. And the notion would be that the book would be conceived of as its own kind of work. And, and, and I would want to collaborate with the designer in a way that would require the poems have some flexibility, that it wouldn't just be that the designer was doing something to coincide with what I had already done, but that we would be working, you know, together. From the, and, from like inception, like the inception and a back yeah, and forth exactly. as well as together, sort of. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then the other thing is, is I, I had the great good fortune of being able to, once I moved to New York, to, 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 to do, to perform or to read poetry with musicians. And that, that has changed. That meant that all of these implicit ideals that I had now became totally explicit. Um, but what it has also meant is that I had to get past this point where I was just like reading poetry while musicians play or reading over their playing. I needed to be able to play with them. I needed to get to the point where I could think of myself um, as an instrument. Yeah, exactly. 
and and that meant I needed to become capable of doing something which I did not know how to do before, which is to listen and play at the same time, which is what these great improvising musicians do. They listen and play simultaneously. And I'm still learning. I'm learning how to do that as fast as I can. But what You've I also been need- sharing all your life. It seems like it, because your, your cultural theorizing, you're like you're the thinking, the writing, the making that you've been doing before, like you said, you moved to New York. You just see the threads of that throughout it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's and it and like I said, coming to New York this last five years has been a way for I won't say all those threads come together, but they but they're all visible, you know. They don't they don't get they don't come together in a knot. They sort of <laughs> form a, a really cool little fringe, you know, uh, <laughs> is what I would say. And um and it has meant that, yeah, I I don't think that I'm not saying I'll never publish another book of poetry. I'm saying it would be a different kind of book. And I'm also saying that a lot of the poetry that I hope to to publish in the broadest sense of that word, it'll be be on records, you know, now rather than in between a page. And and I've been able to do that um, with my friends and these great musicians named Brandon Lewis and uh, Brandon Lopez and Gerald Cleaver. And um, it's been a beautiful thing. And we, we put out an album, uh, you know, earlier this year. And and um, it's like, I'm sort of embarrassed when I listen to it because I can hear myself reading without listening, <laughs> you know? Because you know it's different now, like yeah. how you would be performing it. Yeah, but all I care about now in a lot of ways, all I crave is just more and more chances to do stuff with them, you know, and 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 it, in a way it almost it's I guess it really does help me to fulfill this fantasy I've always had, you know, to be to be living the life of a musician in a certain way, which which I think in many ways, even beyond my idealization of it, it's it's a life which is structured by this interplay between playing and listening. You know. Yeah, I I really love that, Fred. Do you have one of your books there, Fred, or is there? Oh yeah, they're they're all. It's all in my computer. So, well, I will. Uh, I'll play. Uh, I'll read you a poem. Um, it's probably the the poem that I have read the most. Um, in in my you know various readings um it's it's not from all that beauty it's from the my second book which is called b jenkins oh is um, Is uh, that the one with your your is is the cover image is that your mom yeah that's my mom okay okay that's my mom oh cool so um i used to read this this poem pretty much at every at every reading um why do you do that, Fred? Well, because, you know, it's it's a way of, you know, I mean, you know, my mom is with me all the time, but I figure it's a nice thing to be able to bring her into the room, you know, for everybody else. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so I used to, I don't, I don't do it that much anymore. I got, you know, sometimes you, I get in a rut, but you know, you switch things up or whatever. But but I last reading I did actually I read it and uh so it got me back in the mood to read it again. 
And also when I, when I did the recording, this is one of the poems that we did. So, so I'll play it, you know, while I'm reading it. I'll play, I'll read it to you now, and then we can play it, you know, for you on the recording of it later. B. Jenkins. Her territory sunflower, insurgent floor time in real time in the field museum. Bertha Lee in her lyric ways and her urban plan. Up and down the regular highway and every two-tone station passing through to cure for preservation to unfold it all away. She put the new thing in the open cell one more time about the theory of who we are. In the names away in blocks with double names to interrupt and gather, kept dancing in tight circles between break and secret, vaulted with records in our basement where the long-haired hippies and Afro-Blacks all get together across the tracks and they party. Everybody's sewn like grain and touched in stride. Now the cold new reckoning is tired and you've been waiting for a preferential song. The multiplex should be in the frame like bodies in a house way back in the woods, fled in suspended projects like the real thing, posed for the midnight trill. Essential shtetl of the world stage, born way before you was born, move the administered word by breathing to hand beautiful edge around. So, yeah, that's my, <laughs> that's B. Jenkins. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a poem that ends up working in my mind as a kind of way to, 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 to um, it's, it's a kind of position piece, you know, in a certain way. And since it like, it's, it's, it's something like an Ars Poetica for that, for that particular volume of books or of poems. And, um, but it's also a way of kind of understanding where I was at that moment in my sort of career, I guess you could say. Um, so it was a way of kind of getting my place, you know, understanding my, where I was at that moment, you know, um, and, and, you know, and it's cause the book is an elegy, you know, for my mom and, uh, and I wanted to try to give away, you know, in poetry in a, in a certain cryptic kind of poetry, I wanted to to provide for readers, you know, a way of reading the book, you know, try to get them to understand what, what I was trying to do, you know? Um, and, uh, and also, you know, saying what I was trying to do for myself, you know, trying to understand it myself, you know? So, yeah. It, it feels like it, it's still something then that's just like, it's your, it is part of yourself because it's, it's almost something that's become like you were saying, Fred, earlier, it's something that you you've read through diff the years, really, because that was an early book. Like what what year was that? So that is I think it's 2009. So or no. Oh, wait, I was thought you were going to say it earlier. Oh, no, no, it's 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 uh, it's 2000. I'm sorry. I have to look it up. <laughs> uh, no, it's okay. I should know. I should have my my, no, I, my I, list of I all the. It's 2010. Okay. 
the uh, Houston's Tavern was 2009. That was my first book. This was 2010. But, you know, my mom died in 2000. And um, I remember when she passed away, a good friend of hers, uh, a woman named Katie Butler, said, oh, well, you, you know, you have to write a book about your mom. You know, you have to write a, a to tell the story of your mom because it's such an extraordinary story. And I, and of course, I'm not capable of that kind of story. You know, I, I don't have the attention span to to write a memoir or a novel or you know or a you know a biography in that way. And so, but what I could do, you know, what I began to do, you know, not long after that was I started writing all these poems, the titles of which were proper names. Um, you know, about artists that I love, you know, James Baldwin or, you know, Renee Gladman, you know, William Parker, Julian Boyd, who was my dissertation director, lots, lots of people, some people who I knew, some people that I never met, you know, most of the people were people that my mom never met, but they were all people who were on my horizon because of her, right? And, and what I wanted was my writing, so to speak, about those people to be, so imagine like one of those portraits of someone and then you get up close to it and you realize it's, it's pixelated and it's, and it's a bunch of pictures of a whole bunch of other people. And that's what I wanted this book to be, you know? So it's a sort of elegiac portrait of my mom but it's also these individual portraits to a certain extent. I don't know if portrait's the right word. Impressions maybe is a better word of, of people, of thinkers and of their ideas and so forth that, that again, were only available to me because of her, you know? Um, and so, so that's what I was trying to do, you know? But I also was trying to, you know, sometimes the poems have two titles, one at the beginning and one at the end. And sometimes what the poem does is sort of bridge these two people, you know, who ordinarily we wouldn't think about together, you know? So there's stuff in there. It's like, like the first poem in the book after the original B. Jenkins is Gail Jones and then Billie Holiday. And then the Billie Holiday poem at the end of that poem, uh, the second title of Billie Holiday is, is Roland Barthes, the great sort of French, you know, literary theorist and, and philosopher. So, so some, so a lot of what the poem is about is, you know, what connects these two people in my head, <laughs> you know, right. um, how do they, how are they connected, you know, so. And then not only with those two people, but also connecting your mom directly yes. into that yes. as well. Do you feel like it's, um, that piece for you is an Ars Poetica for you? And not almost like a, it's it's not a touchstone, like it's not a physical object, but it is, but it's, so it's not materiality or so, but that way of speaking it aloud. Will you do that when you're here? Do you think too, Fred? Do you think you'll read that one? Nah, I, uh, oh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I, I, uh, I actually made a, a kind of a... Uh... A set list? A set list. Mm -hmm. But I can't remember if I put that on there or not, actually. So I'm, let me look and see. 
<laughs> I I I can't remember if I did, but uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did. Nah, well, I don't think I did. No, I didn't. Um, I made it kind of chronological, you know. So I just do. I think I have stuff in there from all six books, and then and then from this new book that's about to come out um, in in the spring. So. So I just thought, okay, I'll just do a couple from each book. But but yeah, the the B. Jenkins for a while, I just I still and there's there's two poems in the book called B. Jenkins. So it's the first poem and the last, so that it's also producing that same effect of again, you know, everything in the middle of the book is a part of this bridge, you know, from from B. Jenkins to B. Jenkins, from you know, the to <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to get too weird about it, but um, go on. But you know, for me, you know, I'm not I'm not a traditionally religious person, you know. But but if there is an, an alpha and an omega for me, is it's my mom, you know. She's the beginning and the end for for me, you know. So so that's that's how it works, you know. Um, and you know. Uh, and that's still how it works, even even if I don't read the the poem, even if I don't read the poem. Yeah. Oh, definitely. She's yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for choosing to read that one then for this moment. And yeah. and we'll be able to share it then with everyone over the radio waves. So they'll 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 get a chance to hear it too. Yeah, Fred, I feel like. I could talk to you forever, which is not a good thing for your time. So, <laughs> but I, yeah, I've loved talking with you today. Um, oh, it's, fun. it's fun. I appreciate the chance. Could I ask you one more thing before sure. we go out? Because I was reading about, I think it was maybe the article in the New Yorker uh, back around the time when consent not to be a single being, they were out and you were talking about how everyday life, well, my notes, my my little scratch notes, everyday life is a study bringing in how conversations among people, that's scholarly work as much as this other way of thinking about like what could be scholarship or so. And I think it was interconnected with the idea of the university isn't a place of refuge. You know, there's, it could be, because you think it's like this place of ideas and enlightenment, but it comes with its own human construct and complexities and hierarchies. And I just found it so interesting, but I feel like the work that, your your body of work has been what it's been exploring and asserting and challenging about the dis disruption of the, these kind of assumptions even and and well, is there a question in there that you can grab hold of because I I'm mean, not feel like I'm trying to encapsulate something that you're here you could say much better. <laughs> well, you know, one of the I. I have a really good friend, you know, who um, we've known each other for 40 years now. And uh, we, we, we met on the literary magazine at an undergraduate um, in, in, in college. And his name is Stefan O'Harney. And sort of 20 years or so into our friendship, we started, 
we always kind of had some ideas about trying to write stuff together or publish stuff together and they never quite panned out. Um, but, but when there was a moment when we were both living in New York and able to hang out and we, we, we started writing stuff together and eventually that writing, uh, some of that writing or that practice of writing resulted in a book called the undercommons. And, um, and, and, and part of what we do together in the undercommons is to try to, to try to elaborate a, a notion of study and of what study is. And, and in order, and partly we, we began, you know, by trying to consider our own positions and our own sort of place, you know, so to speak in the university. And, and we were kind of concerned with why, you know, it doesn't feel good all the time or m much of the time to be in the university and why it is at the university, even though it purports to be a refuge for thinking, why it is that it's, it's sort of hard to study in the university, you know, to really study in the, in the way that we, we wanted to and in the way that, ways that we were imagining. So that's what we do in that book. But what we also realize is that, you know, the reason that the university is understood to be a refuge for thinking is because there's such tremendous brutalizing anti-intellectual pressure that's put every on every place else in, in the society. You know, in America, especially. Yeah, yeah. They 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 work people to death and they they make it hard for people to think. They make it hard for people to to consider certain kinds of questions, to to you know, they, they make it very difficult. And and when you go to school as a kid, again, it's not a place where you're going for the most part to learn how to think. It's a question, it's a place where you're going to learn how to work, you know, and learn how to become suitable for work, um, to become docile. You know, and unquestioning. You know, in a certain kind of way. Yeah, it's a, it's a place where you learn how to go to be indefatigable on the one hand, and obedient. You know, on on the other. So, you know, we were we were trying to talk about that a little bit. Um, it's not a book about the university. There's one chapter in there about the university, but it, but it is a book about study. You know, and about what it is, what what study can be, what it could be. And, and the conclusion that we arrived at was that actually, even though most of society is submitted to this brutal anti-intellectual pressure, um, it is within those realms that most of the study takes place in the barbershop or the coffee room or the, you know, that's where it takes place. And, and it takes the form of hanging out with other people and talking about stuff, really hanging out with people and talking about your life. I mean, I was talking with a, a MFA student at Michigan today about, about her poetry. And, and she was commenting on, you know, she's from writing about people from Minnesota who are farmers. They talk about the weather and it's not small talk to them. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. It's all bound up with their livelihood and they become, and they are students of the weather, <laughs> you know? And, and so, yeah, those forms of study are what, you know, we, we want to gravitate to, you know, and wanted to learn how to, to be, to be involved in again. And, and also to learn that, look, I, I love reading big fat books of theory, but I want to take the approach to those books to be 
the same approach that, that my grandmother would take in a conversation that she would have with her best friend from across the street about cooking cabbage. They would get into it into great detail, you know? They, she had certain pots that she used for it and not other pots. And, you know, she studied how to cook it, you know, for, for, <laughs> for 70 years, you know? So, um, you know, there's, it's, it's, uh, it's really not, I mean, this is something I'll try to talk about, I guess, a little bit Friday, you know, there, but it's, it's not really about craftsmanship. It's, it's sort of a much more, it's, it's mechanical, <laughs> you know, um, you know, but, but, but the point is, I think study can happen in the university, but you have to fight for it, you know, and, and even if it can happen in the university, it doesn't necessarily mean that the university is the best place for it. You know, it's a, it's a workplace. That's where I work, you know, just like, I mean, you know, one of the great, 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 great touchstones for me and one of the great, I had a friend named Catherine Lindbergh who taught at Wayne State. She was a great friend of mine and a great, great literary critic, you know, and uh, her husband, Murray Jackson, was an extraordinary poet. He published with Broadsides Press in Detroit that Dudley Randall started. Yeah. And I used to, you know, we would go visit Catherine a lot, talk to Murray and, you know, they, they both passed away, but so I miss them, you know, it's hard for me to even come to Detroit now, you know, you know, you know, I don't even, but, uh, but the point is one time when I was in Detroit, I met this great, great man who was uh, an important leader of this movement, the revolutionary union movements in, of auto workers, of black auto workers in Detroit in the 1960s and 70s. His name was General Baker. He was a key figure in the League of Black Revolutionary Workers. And, and, and the thing is, is he, he was in this very contradictory position that it turns out is much like the contradictory position that university workers are in, particularly when they become conscious of some of what's debilitating about working in the university, you know? And, and you know, he worked for Ford Motor Company because, you know, in Dodge at different times, he was an organizer of workers. He worked for Ford or for Dodge because, A, he needed to make a living, you know, for his family. And also, B, that's where the workers were. If you want to organize workers, you know, you go work where the, you know. So I'm like, oh, I work in the university because it helps me. It makes make, I, I'm able to make a living and, and do what I need to do for my family and friends. And it's where the students are, you know. But the thing about General Baker was he it's yes, it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction to be made to be to be in a position where you have to work for an institution that you're trying to abolish. Right. Like he wanted to bring Ford Motor Company down, you know, but it's a contradiction. Well, how can you work? You know, and people it's yeah, that's a contradiction we all work in. You know, my grandmother's grand my grandmother's grandfather was a slave. You know, he worked on a plantation and he worked in that plantation. And I also am very confident that every every other thought he had was about how to destroy that plantation. You know, I think that this is the condition that most working people are in. They would they work in part because what they want to do is not only make a living, but also they work in the hope that somehow they might obliterate the institutions that they work for because those institutions are exploitative 
and unfair and hierarchical and brutalizing. This is, this is a contradiction, but it's a contradiction within which we live. And so, and, and again, another great figure, another great, great mentor of, of mine and, and Stefano's, you know, Cedric Robinson, who used to teach at University of Michigan at one point, he, he always would remind us, he would always say, we have to heighten the contradictions. I mean, sometimes he would say, we have to deepen those contradictions. We don't, we don't, there's no, there's no, no, you don't avoid the contradiction. You don't try to resolve the contradiction. You deepen and heighten the contradiction until the structure that is based on that contradiction falls, you yeah. know? And you, and have you to heighten it and deepen it. it. Yeah. yeah. You heighten it and deepen it in, in your practices, you know, um, in, in, in your studious practices. I feel like you might have learned that way back when you left undergrad for a year and went to to work in Nevada. Maybe you didn't know it, or maybe you did, Fred, but I feel like even the act of leaving a university and then coming back and in a way doing your own reading of Dante or whatever the reading is that you're doing. Sometimes the biggest, look, man, I, I grew up in a world that was amazing and rich and beautiful and terrible and horrible and difficult and hard all at the same time. Um, and, you know, the people in that world, they sent me to school, you know, to, to make a living and to contribute something to the, the general project, you know, of liberation that we all shared, that we were all part of. And, um, and what I realized, you know, with increasing intensity every day is that what I, what I'm learning is a bunch of stuff that they already knew, <laughs> you know, I'm learning what they knew and I'm kind of learning a little bit about how they knew it. They, so I don't know if, I don't know that it was so much that taking that year off is where I learned it. They, I was, I was, those were my earliest lessons, <laughs> you know, from, from the time I was a baby, you know? Um, and so, yeah. Fred, thanks for talking today. I've loved talking with you. Well, it's been Thank fun. You. I appreciate it, T. I've enjoyed talking with you, too. Well, today on Living Writers, Fred Moten, his book, All That Beauty, and also The Field Trio, and many, many more. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Yeah. Well, this is um, the same poem that I read before but utterly transformed and transfigured because of the presence of my friends these, and my, my, I'm happy, proud to say my bandmates, you know, um, Brandon Lopez and Gerald Cleaver. So, and this is from the record that we put out last year. And, and this, so this is another version, the, a truer, better version, I hope, uh, I think of B. Jenkins. Um, so here we go.
territory sunflower. Insurgent floor time in real and now in the field. It's time for sports on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3, and this is your daily sports report. For the first time this year, Happy New Year, I get to say it since I haven't done it since uh, December, about a month ago. I'm Ryan Dolson, joined here today by Daniel Olson. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. It's been a good couple of weeks uh, in 2023 and excited to talk some NFL and Michigan basketball today with you. Yeah, that should be exciting. Good start to the semester, I hope. But as we said, unfortunately, the uh, Michigan football season is over. Can't really be talking too much about that one. But thankfully, we've had more than a few exciting NFL games to keep us busy. Last week, the playoffs happened. I'll rattle off the scores really quickly since I imagine the people from the past few days they've been talking about them a lot so I figured it'd probably be better to do a bit of a uh, matchup preview for next week's games rather than dwell on the past as I imagine other people have but for quick reference sake on Saturday the 49ers beat the Seahawks 41 to 23 Jaguars beat the Chargers 31 to 30 on Sunday the Bills beat the Dolphins 34 31 Giants beat the Vikings 31 24 Bengals beat the Ravens 24-17, and the Cowboys eliminated Tom Brady and the Buccaneers 31-14 in a game that was not as close as that already blowout score seems to imply. But, uh, yeah, were there any really big surprises? I feel like that whole—I feel like I could have really predicted, maybe not the scores, but I feel like I definitely could have predicted the outcome of pretty much all of those games going into that weekend but was there anything that really surprised you anything that you just want to make a quick note of uh not really I mean I think the way the Jaguars Chargers game went down was definitely surprising Chargers blowing that 27 point lead of course but yeah all the results 